please remain standing for the reading of God's word from Galatians 1 and Galatians 6. Galatians 1, beginning in verses 1 to 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And then chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision nor or neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, brother. Amen. You may be seated. That's God's word for his people. And let's pray once again and ask for God's help. So shine the light of your illuminating spirit upon our eyes and our hearts in your word today that we may behold wonderful things in it. May your mercy and peace and grace be ours, we pray, Father, for the glory of your name. Amen. The first lines of any literary work are undoubtedly important. And the best of them establish the scene and the plot, the characters and the ethos in a single sentence that stands out long after the work is published, like, call me Ishmael, or a screaming comes across the sky, or once there were four children whose names were, I'm sure you know them, Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy. Now, work can overcome a bad first line. I not too partial to first lines, but I do love last lines. And so a work can overcome a bad first line, but it's really hard to overcome a bad last line, the best of which stick, long, uh, stick with you long after you close the cover. Like for an instant, everything was bathed in radiance. Or I'll pray and then I'll sleep. Or one of my favorites, and there in the corner, at a table for two, her hair tinged with gray, the willowy woman waited. And the Apostle Paul knew the importance of first and last lines, and Galatians is no exception. After his brief introduction, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then concludes the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. And Paul bookends this letter with God's amazing grace. 
And grace is the giving of an undeserved gift. And so when we speak of God's grace, we speak of God, the God who generously provides good gifts towards undeserving sinners. Of course, his supreme gift is his son, Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose again for the salvation of his people and the glory of his name. But grace isn't just something God does. Like some days he's gracious and other days or times he's not. Grace is who God is. Now, unlike us, God doesn't act graciously when he feels like it or when there's an opportunity to, and then sometimes doesn't when there's opportunities to. God gives undeserved gifts because he is gracious. That's what he reveals to us in Exodus 34. He says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's who God's revealed himself to be. He is gracious. It's his nature. And when you think of God, do you know him as he's revealed himself to us in his word? And Galatians presents to us this grand vision of the gracious God by proclaiming the glorious gospel of grace. God is gracious, and we see it most clearly in the glorious gospel of grace. And so we close our Galatians series today using Paul's first and last lines as our key to understanding the letter as a whole. We have four points. God's reversing grace, God's justifying grace, God's sustaining grace, and standing firm in God's grace. So first, we see God's reversing grace. God's reversing grace. Paul's introduction sets the scene of the great reversals of God's grace. He's an apostle, which is a messenger of God, but then he tells us it's not because of his plans or his dreams or his vision or his actions and not even other people's plans or dreams or visions or actions. It's through Jesus Christ and God the Father that Paul is an apostle. God graciously changed the trajectory of Paul's life. Because then in throughout chapter 1, Paul tells us of the zealousness of his former life in Judaism. So extreme was his zeal that he tried to destroy the Christian faith and Jesus' church. Some of you are very zealous for the things you love, but I've never felt my life threatened in, you know, not maybe comedically, but never really did I ever think I had to hide from you because you might kill me for not joining in with you. But far from a mere hobby, Paul zealously opposed God, which set him on a trajectory of death. But the God of grace is the God at work to pour out his grace. And he doesn't have to wait for opportunities to be gracious or to plan to act graciously. Since God is gracious, he's at work to pour out that grace at all times, which he did upon Paul on the Damascus Road, reversing Paul's trajectory by literally knocking him down. 
And so great was that reversal, people could only conclude it was God's grace. That's how chapter 1 ends in verses 23 and 24. They were only hearing it said, the church, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. The only one that can bring life out of death is the gracious God. And that's why Paul is so concerned at the beginning of Galatians with false teachers leading this church away from God's grace. It was grace that Jesus gave himself for his people's sins to deliver them from the present evil age, which was all according to God's gracious will so that God gets all the glory. And so it blows Paul's mind when he hears they're turning to a false, graceless gospel and deserting the God who reversed the course of their lives when he called them in the grace of Christ Jesus. The false teachers seem to have said that in addition to faith in Jesus, one must observe the Mosaic law in order for God to justify you. And so usually... Adding something to something else isn't a subtraction, right? When you add two things together, there's more things, not less. But the gospel works differently. Adding anything to the gospel actually subtracts from it. Because telling people to add to God's grace in Jesus Christ subtracts from the person and work of Jesus Christ. It says Jesus isn't enough. So it's a subtraction because it robs Jesus of his glory. And this subtraction is a matter of life and death because the trajectory of real people's eternities are in view. Only God's grace reverses the course of sinful humanity's eternal destiny. We were dead in sin and lost in the present evil age. But God, who was rich in mercy, poured out his grace to the, to, to, the, or to the display of the riches of his glorious grace, Paul says elsewhere. He's pointing all to God's grace. It's the gracious God who set Paul apart from before birth and does so for all sinners. It's the gracious God who calls sinners by his grace from death to life. It's the gracious God who reveals his son to sinners as their only savior. And it's the gracious God who reverses the trajectory of sinners for the glory of his name. It's all of grace. And brothers and sisters, grace, this reversing grace, is our stories too, is it not? And because it's our story, all by grace, it means it can be anyone's story. No one is ever too far gone for God to save. If he sets them apart from birth, nothing will stop his calling them by his grace in Jesus Christ. If salvation is all by God's grace and not by works, then no matter how bleak a loved one's current trajectory may be, they're never out of reach of God's reversing grace. So don't stop praying and don't start believing that God's arm is too short 
to deliver anyone from sin and death in the present evil age. No one is ever too far gone. Praise God, you weren't too far gone. And because no one is ever too far gone, we see God's justifying grace. No one is ever too far gone because it's God who justifies. The grace of great reversals comes only through God's justifying grace. That's why Paul denounces every false teacher and curses every false gospel standing against the truth of chapter 2, verse 16. Look at it with me. He says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Just over and over, not works. It's faith in Christ, not works. In Christ, Christ, not works. It's only by faith alone in Jesus' perfect life and sufficient death that God justifies sinners. And justification is a fancy word for God both declaring sinners not guilty of their sins and also righteous in his sight as the Spirit unites sinners to Jesus, which is all by grace alone through faith alone. Sinners aren't justified by any work. You can't add anything to what Jesus has already done and who Jesus is. In fact, anything we have done, anything we do, and anything we could do would only serve to deepen the divide between us and the holy God. And when you realize that is the truth of the gospel Paul is fighting for, you realize that apart from God's grace, you have no hope. If anything you could do would just further divide you between you and this holy God, you have no hope. But God, by graciously calling us to himself and opening our eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ, God causes belief in Jesus in order to justify sinners through faith alone in Christ alone and not by works of the law. He keeps saying it over and over, and we might think, okay, I got it. But the reason he keeps saying it over and over is because we don't get it. We might get it in the moment, but this afternoon you will be tempted to look to your own righteousness as a basis of your salvation. And if not this afternoon, soon. It's not by works of the law, but faith alone in Christ alone. And that's the truth of the gospel that Paul so vigorously defends from his very first words of Galatians. Because to add anything to faith in Jesus, to add anything is to abandon your only hope of salvation. But even with eternal trajectories at stake, why is it so tempting to turn from the gospel of grace? Why, why is it so tempting to desert the gospel of grace and turn to a false one that's filled with chains and slavery? Because to believe the gospel of grace is to believe in our great need as great sinners. It's, it's our pride that causes false gospels to be so tempting to believe. 
Because the gospel of grace declares our great need as great sinners. And that's what chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 teach. That all people everywhere are sinners in equal need of saving. There's no advantage to your ethnicity or your economic uh, status or your abilities or your influence or your power or your beauty or any of the other ways we often characterize and view people. God sees everyone at a more fundamental level. Sinners. No one is righteous. Male, female, Jew, Gentile, young, old, doesn't matter. Everyone, everyone's greatest need is to be saved from their sin, to be made right with God, which they can't accomplish. You have this great need and can't do anything about it. And so false gospels are so tempting because it's not in our nature to admit that we have a great need. But the glory of the gospel of grace is that there's a greater hope for all those who will admit their great need. Yes, we're great sinners. But praise God. God's grace in Jesus Christ is greater. The great hope of the gospel isn't sinners contributing to their salvation. You figuring a few things out, you getting the key so you can make everything right. The great hope of the gospel isn't you. And it has no part of you. Because even your faith in Jesus isn't a work. It's God's gracious gift. That's the point of Galatians 2.16. So we also have believed. But you believe because of God's grace. But you believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ. And not by works. Which means faith isn't a work. Faith isn't a work that justifies It's God's gracious gift because it's not our doing that saves us. It will never be our doing that saves us, but who we believe in, who we trust in, who our faith is in that saves us. That's the heart of Paul's letter to the Galatians, that the gospel is the gospel of God's justifying Grace. The gospel is the gospel of grace. And Paul didn't make this up. And Paul didn't get it from anyone, he says. This is God. I'm an apostle of God with the gospel of God, which is the gospel of God's reversing, justifying grace, so that he gets all the glory alone forever and ever. Amen. And if God justifies by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, then what does that mean, brothers and sisters? What does alone mean? It means alone. You can say it. It means alone. Which means, brothers and sisters, we can never make any work part of our salvation. Never. And we are far removed from Paul writing Galatians, but we're still tempted to turn our doing into our saving. And maybe it's not the Mosaic law. But do you look to your being here this morning as a basis of God's favor with you? 
the volume of your singing, the contriteness of your repentance, the amount of your giving, the many words you could pray, maybe the few words that you could pray. Isn't it amazing how we can even turn prayer into an act of pride or fasting or reading and memorizing the Bible? I mean, there's just, if we just go on and on and on of all these things that tempt us to find the basis of God's love and favor with us. That if I'm doing all the right things today, well then, God is really pleased with me. And if I'm not, brothers and sisters, God love, God's love for you doesn't grow for you on your good days and it doesn't fall for you on your bad days. Because God didn't set his love on you first because of anything you were or anything you could be. In fact, it was in spite of who you were and what we would continue to be that he graciously loved you all because he wanted to. And his reversing, justifying grace can never change because it's united you to his son. It's not that God isn't pleased with sin. Don't, don't mishear me. It's that his love for you cannot grow or fall because of your sin. Because you're already united to Jesus. And if you're, you're united to Jesus by faith, God loves you as he loves his son, which is perfectly and unchangingly. Now that doesn't matter that doesn't mean sin doesn't matter to God, but rather our sin doesn't change God's love for us. If your faith alone is in Jesus alone, then Jesus already paid for your sin on the cross, which means your sin can't overcome God's justifying grace. Not even your sin is too strong for Jesus' blood, no matter how deep it is. And if that's true, then God's love for you cannot change. Now, we'll talk about how Paul ends his letter in a moment. But in this moment, what it means, again, is that when your faith unites you to Jesus, God loves you as he loves his son. What's true of Jesus is true of you. He loves you perfectly and unchangingly. So why would you ever turn to any work for assurance of God's love for you? You can't earn it. <laughs> you couldn't earn it. In fact, all you would earn is God's just wrath upon you as a sinner. So don't turn to any work for assurance of God's love or salvation. It's only found in Jesus. And when you turn to Jesus, you experience God's reversing grace and his justifying grace. And then if it couldn't get any better, God pours out his sustaining grace. Thirdly, we see God's sustaining grace. 
chapter 3, verse 1, to chapter 5, verse 1, teach that we not only enter the people of God, all by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, we continue living as the people of God, all by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And you might think Paul gets exasperated because he has to keep saying this over and over and over. But he gets exasperated because he has to keep saying it over and over and over and over because the Galatians keep forgetting. In the JJ translation, he's like, you idiots. What are you doing? He calls them fools. You foolish Galatians. What are you? What are you mesmerized? Are you bewitched? Who, who tricked you? Who's cast a spell over you? What, what are you doing? Snap out of it. I billboarded Jesus Christ before you as God's answer to the problem. He was crucified and resurrected before you in his sight. And God graciously made you alive as you looked to Jesus and believed in him. And when you did, God poured out his Holy Spirit upon you when you heard with faith. So if you received the Spirit by faith and not by works, why in the world would you think you need to receive circumcision or the law to enter into God's people? The fact that the Spirit is present with you proves you're already part of God's people. You already enjoy Abraham's blessing of the promised Holy Spirit. If you're already enjoying the blessing of Abraham's family, what can that only mean? You're already in the family. It would be like if Owen came to Becky and I and said, I want to get Sherwood tattooed on my forehead and then on my back of my neck and on both sides of my hands so that everyone knows and I can become part of your family. And I would be like, well, that would kind of be sweet, maybe. <laughs> and you can do that, I guess, maybe, if you want to. Not when you're 10. But buddy, God made you a part of our family long before you were ever born. And anything you do or don't do can't change that ultimate reality. You don't have to earn our name. You already have it. And like that, the same goes for those who are born of the Spirit through faith in Jesus. You don't have to do anything because God's already done it in Jesus Christ. And so then he starts teaching about the role of the law and the covenants because they're misunderstanding them in chapters 3 and 4. And then he goes on to say the role and, or the law and the covenants are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. They find their fulfillment in Jesus. So if the way into the people of God isn't by works, but by faith alone, in Christ alone, and you're already enjoying all these blessings apart from anything you could ever do, then the way to continue living as God's people isn't by works. It's not by earning it. It's not by doing things to get his name stamped on you. He says, you heard with faith the gospel of grace. And you became, all by grace, the Israel of God. He stamped his name on you. And so the way to continue living 
with God's name stamped on you isn't to earn it, but by God's sustaining grace that keeps you trusting in Jesus alone. That's why he writes in chapter 3, verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he who gives you the blessing of being delivered from the present evil age and into the age of the Spirit, that he does that, does he do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So everything needed to be justified in God's sight and brought into his family is supplied by faith, not by works. And if God provided everything needed for our greatest problem of sin, separating us from God and the death it deserved, through Jesus' substitutionary, sufficient, and sacrificial death, none of which you played any part in other than the sin you needed saving from, and he didn't even need you to partner with him when his spirit gave you faith and united you to Jesus, but you got all this by hearing the gospel with faith, well, if that's true, then this supplying God can be trusted to provide everything needed to sustain our living as his people. If he made you his people by grace, he'll sustain you as his people by grace. In other words, brothers and sisters, the message of Galatians isn't only that the gospel is all of grace. But also, we never move on from the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace is both the source of our life and it sustains our life. Which then begs the question, is is your life sustained by faith alone and Jesus alone? Is your life sustained by the truth of the gospel Paul so vigorously defends? Is it the bread you feed on every morning? Is it the way you define your meaning and purpose in life? Is your life sustained by faith alone in Jesus alone? In Jesus alone in whom are now Abraham's sons, whether you're male or female. You're a spiritual son and so heirs of God's promise, regardless of what your previous identity was. So chapter 5, verse 2, to chapter 6, verse 10, explain then what that looks like. Yes, that's true, but what does that mean? What does that look like in our lives? And explains this sustaining grace using one main word, freedom. Freedom. In Christ, we're free from sin and death. In Christ, the offspring, we're Abraham's sons, heirs of promise. In Christ, we're new creations delivered from this present evil age. And since all that is ours in Christ, by faith, so in Christ, apart from works of the law, we're free. We're free. But the law only being in force until Jesus came doesn't lead into then moral chaos. It doesn't leave us living however we want. God's reversing and justifying and sustaining grace doesn't leave us free to do whatever we please. It leads to living in the power of the Holy Spirit. It leads to a life of love, Joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against things there is no law. It's the power of the Holy Spirit living in us and through us. God's reversing, justifying, sustaining grace produces a free life of faith working through love. Faith working through love. Let's answer the question I asked just a few minutes ago. Is your life sustained by the gospel of grace? You can evaluate that by looking at your life. If you live on faith, the fruit of it will be love. Listen to chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. For you were called to freedom, brothers. You're free. Free from sin, free from death, free from the present evil age, free from hearts that can't love God, free from desires that never wanted God. You're a new creation. You're free. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Christ came to free you from sin and death and evil to a life of freedom that serves. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now you're like, ah, there's, there's the bait and switch. There's Paul talking out of both sides of his mouth. I'm free from the law, but now go live according to the law. Well, it, does, it may sound like Paul contradicts himself, But I can't answer it any better than Tom Schreiner. So here's a a more lengthy quote. It says, Human beings cannot obtain righteousness on the basis of their good works. And yet those who walk by the Spirit, uh, chapter 5, verse 16, are led by the Spirit, verse 18. They keep in step with the Spirit, verse 25. They're also led by the Spirit, verse 25. And so to the Spirit, chapter 6, verse 8 and manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 22. They still battle the flesh and struggle against sin daily. That's chapter 5, verse 17. And yet, a new kind of life is lived. It's free, so it's not on the basis of our resources. That would be slavery, because we don't have the resources. But, by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Indeed, this new way of living is not optional. Those who practice the works of the flesh and sow to the flesh will not enter God's kingdom on the last day. True faith leads to a life of love. And that life of faith and love is empowered by the Holy Spirit. So our freedom that we have in Christ is not a new kind of slavery where we exchange old chains for new ones. It's a life empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so then Paul concludes his letter by teaching us what that means because this new way of living isn't optional. It isn't optional. And so fourthly and finally Paul says, stand firm in God's grace. The message of Galatians is, let me tell you the glorious gospel of grace. And then stand firm in it. As Paul 
says in chapter 5, verse 1, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You know, this just simply means that the Christian life is really a daily battle against becoming slaves again. Slaves to your own passions, slaves to sin, slaves to self-righteousness, slaves to work. In one sense, the Christian life is a daily battle, but it's a fight to never become a slave again and to live in the freedom that is already ours in Jesus Christ. So he says, stand firm, which means it gives the picture that you didn't get there. (laughs) You got placed there. You see the picture? It doesn't say climb the mountain and then stay on top of it. It says stand firm in where you already are. And standing firm isn't the same thing as standing still, is it? You've been standing still and someone comes off out of nowhere and knocks into you and you stumble forward because you were standing still, not standing firm. When you're standing firm, you've planted your feet so you're immovable no matter what comes your way. And you only stand firm when you know there's danger around. You get caught off guard when you're standing still because you don't expect someone to knock into you. But the Christian life, since it is a daily battle to never become slaves again, means that we wake up every morning knowing there's a danger that I might become a slave again today. Or there's a temptation to desert the true gospel and turn to a false one. So I'm going to be on my guard to never take on a yoke of slavery again. And we do that by putting all our hope in Jesus so that we're immovable in the freedom we have in him. And again, that's all good churchy talk. You know, that's, that makes for a good sermon. But maybe it's not super helpful throughout the week. And so Paul, being a great pastor, doesn't just explain truth. He gives us two ways to stand firm in God's grace. He says, keep in step with the Spirit and boast only in Jesus' cross. Keep in step with the Spirit and boast only in Jesus' cross. Brothers and sisters, we stand firm in the gospel of grace as we keep in step with the Spirit. And many of us come from church contexts where the Holy Spirit is hardly spoken about, except in very, like, hushed tones. We've got to keep them under lock and key so things don't start getting crazy because we're not charismatic. I know that's a caricature, but that's many of our contexts in this room. But one thread Paul weaves throughout Galatians is God's gracious gift of faith in Jesus that unites sinners to Jesus, not only justifies them, but that union with Jesus makes us sons of Abraham, because we're united with the son, the offspring. And because that's true, we are heirs of the promise that God made to give the Holy Spirit to Abraham's children. So when we talk about salvation in Reformed circles, we often forget that one of the central purposes in God's salvific plan to save sinners is to pour out his Holy Spirit on them so that they would live daily in step with the Spirit, 
that they would be led by the Spirit, that they would sow to the Spirit, that the fruit of the Spirit would be produced and growing in their lives. The Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit. Galatians is really a letter about the Holy Spirit. And Jesus delivers his people from the present age. That's what he says in chapter 1, verse 3. But you're not delivered just from something. You're delivered into something. What are you delivered into? You're a new creation delivered into the age of the Spirit. So keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, how do we do that? Well, Paul says in Ephesians, don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit by reading the Word. (laughs) It's the Word of Christ that he wants us to dwell in us richly. It's God's Word that orients our lives around his ways. And the Spirit uses to keep us in line with God's purposes. We keep in step with the Spirit by preaching the gospel of grace daily to ourselves. Because remember, the fight is against slavery and spirit. What's slavery? In Galatians, slavery is taking on ways of self-righteousness. So then to keep in step with the Spirit is to reject any self-righteousness by preaching the gospel of grace. By saying, yes, I once was, but now. So we preach the gospel of grace daily to ourselves. Which, for me, I have found it helpful thinking through Galatians in this particular instance with two very important words. From and for. We keep in step with the Spirit as we remember from and for which are two of the very most important words in the Christian life. Standing firm in God's grace is to believe that you don't live for God's blessing and favor. That you don't live for God's love or for God to change your eternal trajectory. You rather live from God's blessing and favor that's already yours in Jesus. It may sound super simple, and I think that's because in one sense, it is. Believe the gospel of grace. Keep believing the gospel of grace. Keep in step with the Spirit who's united you to Jesus, the only one who is sufficient to save sinners. So keep in step with the Spirit by never taking on the yoke of living for God's love. Enjoy your Bible reading. You know, if you got one of those plans and you're 8,000 boxes behind already because it's October and you got stuck in Deuteronomy and every time you look at it, you're like, ugh. God doesn't want you to go, ugh, when you're coming to his word. <laughs> like, he wants you to commune with him. <laughs> you're free. Now, yes, it doesn't mean we don't, nothing matters. No, there's not moral chaos. But God's given you his word not so that he's bludging you with guilt. He wants you to know him. He wants you to enjoy knowing him, talking to him, praying with him, seeing his glory, trusting him. Man, if your Bible reading's a yoke and a guilt trip, maybe it's because you're not keeping in step with the Spirit here. You're living for God's love rather than from it. 
So if you do have one of those, some of you probably have it in your Bible right now. We can burn it right afterwards. It'd be sweet. Let's burn it in the sanctuary. You know, maybe we can get some insurance money for that thing or something. <laughs> but, 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 you know, use them as tools. Tools of grace, not of guilt. Keep in step with the Spirit by never taking on a yoke of living for God's love and favor and blessing, but living every day from what Jesus has already given you in himself. And we will do that as we secondly boast only in Jesus' cross. Boast only in Jesus' cross. You know, you can, you can know a lot about a person by listening to what they talk about. Those whose lives have been transformed by God's reversing, justifying, sustaining grace will talk often about God's amazing grace. They'll talk about what's they, what they once were and what they still would be if not for God's grace. They'll talk about what they were living for and searching for but never found until God's grace broke upon their lives. God's grace will be the first line and the last line of their lives. Which is why I love this line in one of my favorite hymns, redeeming love has been my theme. And what? And shall be till I die. And friend, do you know, do you know God's grace in the redeeming, freeing love of Jesus? In the life of love and freedom and joy and meaning and purpose that you long for is only found in him. So if you hear his voice calling you, do not harden your heart, but turn to him in repentance and faith today. And brothers and sisters, yes, the gospel of grace declares our absolute need and our total helplessness to do anything about it but it also declares the Savior whose blood is greater than all our sin and who shed it on the cross because he loved us and gave himself for us. So don't nullify the grace of God by boasting in things that can never save you. Keep in step with the Spirit by boasting only in Jesus's cross. And as you do, you will daily experience the waves of blessing in Paul's last line of Galatians. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Let's pray. What more can we say today, Father, than what you have already said to us? We praise you for your word. We pray that it would shape us. It would guide us. It would be our life. So much so that we more and more live in your freeing, loving, reversing, justifying, saving grace to the glory of your name. That our lives might be to the praise of your glory, that you would display in us the riches of your grace to us in Jesus Christ. And so now as we turn to the table, we pray 
that this too would be a means of grace and not of guilt, that you would reveal to us in our hearts any ways that we are straying or have strayed, but remind us of your love and grace that is in Jesus Christ. And we long for the day when this table won't be just a few brothers and sisters, but all. And it wouldn't be just a few moments, but would be the beginning of an eternal life with you, never to deal with sin again. So until that day, we pray that your grace that saved us would also sustain us for the glory of your name. Amen.